0: Okay, as we get started, we're headed over to John chapter 15. John 15, we're going to try to cover some ground at the end of chapter 14, going into 15. But let's do a little bit of thought process here, see if we're wide awake. I'm not getting anything off my clicker. Why is that? Is the adapter not working up there? My clicker is turned on. This is not a good thing. Okay. This is a really bad thing. Okay. Um, We're there's clickers. There's extra clickers up on the shelf there, Kevin. If something's going haywire, or there's not, or that thing's not been attached. Well, he did it. Okay, he's doing it. Okay, did you rechange something? Are you trying your clicker? Is that you doing it with a new clicker? Okay, are you doing it, Tony? Okay. Somebody's bringing me a clicker? Where is Kevin Geisinger? Oh, there you are. I'll meet you down front. (laughs) Okay. Um, What's the worst part of camping outdoors besides sleeping on the ground in the tent in the bad weather? Bugs are going to be there. What else? Smoke, rain. I think rain would be your bad weather. Snakes. I take it animals. Let's try this. Okay, wild animals. That's kids in other words. Uh, No bathroom, shower. Number one was the bugs. Let's try another one. Name something you'd hate to be in when it broke down. Okay, bus, airplane. That's, yeah, airplane's pretty good. Okay. Boat. You say alligator or elevator? <laughs> okay. <laughs> after, I, after I heard, I'm thinking alligator. Oh, elevator. Okay. Here's what we got Elevator. There you go. There's that alligator. Uh, the bus, the train, the subway, the boat, the plane, and number one was car. Yeah. Here we go. Name a reason why someone might be climbing through a window instead of using the door. Fire. somebody's robbing the place. Now this isn't you. Okay, this is somebody else. They lost their key. Yeah, okay, okay. Here we go. The broken door, being chased, lost their key, eloping. Did did anybody say eloping? Okay. Burglarizing the home or fire escape. Name things people will go out to buy right before or after a natural disaster or storm. Bread, water, milk, Flashlights? Batteries? Okay. Insurance? (laughs) Appropriate clothes. Insurance. Somebody's thinking with you. Generator. Batteries, flashlights, food, bread, number one was water. Tribond. What do these three have in common? Fire truck, painter, high dive, platform? Ladders. Yeah, they all have the ladders. There you go. Here we go. Name things people will do while listening to music. Sleep, dance, what's that? Sing along? That's true. I don't even know if it's up there. Okay. Any of you do work? I love to study while I'm listening to music. Yeah, I just, the thing. Drive, dance, eat. Here we go. Yard, work, Uh, study, exercise, and clean is number one. Name a place where babies are born when mom can't make it to the hospital. Car, taxi. The halls. Okay. At home. At home? Okay. I think the alligator slash elevator is probably gonna be here too. Howway. <laughs> okay. Elevator, see, it's there. Home, subway train, and number one is car taxi. Nineteen seventies, the average number of children in the American household was four. What is the average number of children born in a typical American household now? It's more than one. 1.8. That .8 child must have been one of mine. <laughs> Just the, they didn't have the whole they didn't have it all there at times. OK. So you think it's less than two, more than two? It's over two. Okay. It is 2.4. Okay, 2. Point, that that 0.4 child. I don't know. Some of us think we had them. Okay. Here's one for you. What are the most popular Mother's Day gifts? This is a couple years back. What are the most popular? Flowers, cards, chocolate. Cards, chocolate. chocolate. Kids, okay. making breakfast. Kids making breakfast? It's not even going to be there. I think people have decided it's not safe for the kids making breakfast because they'll have to crawl out the window, you know, because of the fire. Jewelry's gonna be up there, if I'm not mistaken. Anything else? A new appliance. Hint, 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 hint. <laughs> a, a vacuum cleaner. Oh, that's romantic, Rich. <laughs> you don't get cleaning items for, for Mother's Day. Yeah, don't, don't do it. It doesn't speak well. Learned early, you learned it early, yeah. yeah. But you're saying it here. <laughs> here you go. Massage treatments. Ooh. Perfum- perfumes. <laughs> Candy, home decor, clothing and accessories, gift cards, flowers, jewelry. Number one thing that people do. Go out to eat. Go out to Burger King. That's a really fancy spot. Yeah, but we'll call it Burger Queen for the day. Yeah, there you go. Here's one for you. About how much is spent on mom for Mother's Day gift, the average family, how much do they spend on mom? I'll give you some options here. Less than 40, 50 in these ballpark. I said the average. Not your household, the average. Okay. Less than 40? What's that? 50? If they're getting flowers, yes. It's (laughs) got to be high. If You're going, yeah. It is roughly 126.90. Ladies, today you just better look and say, are you average husband? Okay, give me the average. Here's one for you. Besides Bible characters, the most number of children in recorded history to one woman, was it 20, 32, 39, 44, 53, 59 over 60? It is over 60. It is 69 children. To a woman, that's her name. I'm not going to try to spell it or say it. I mean, say it. I can see the spelling. If you figure it out, okay, how she was able to do that, she had all multiples. She had 16 sets of twins, 7 triplets, 4 sets of quadruplets. Here is the amazing thing, that all but 2 survived infancy in that era of time and with all the multiple births. Imagine how many gifts she got on Mother's Day. And if it averaged 126 bucks, boy, she made out really good. I wonder if they all gave her vacuum cleaners, you know, something <laughs> like that. Yeah something romantic. Okay, let's head into the Word of God. We'll talk a little bit about Mother's Day and uh, get into that in our morning service. We're headed to a passage where Jesus Christ is talking a lot about himself and about his ministry and helping individuals. We are in that very last week of his life, and uh, he is in that Last Supper time. Actually, it is where we are in John chapter 14. We are leaving the room of the Last Supper. Remember, this is Thursday. They had done their Passover, Paschal meal. He had washed the disciples' feet. that time he had said, one of you is going to betray me. Judas gets up, leaves after Jesus said whatever you do, do it quickly. He leaves and goes and makes his deal to show the Pharisees and Sadducees where Jesus is. Jesus, after Judas leaves, says, hey, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. He goes on and he says, okay, I'm leaving. He tells them for the first time in the conversation, I'm going to be leaving and uh, you can't come with me. They're just absolutely distraught. And so he goes into a section that he's talking about, okay, listen, here's some reassurances. Let not your heart be troubled. And he gives them all these comments. You believe in God, believe also in me. And one of the first things he says, so you have have a troubled heart and to calm down is, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. I will come again. I'm not going to desert you. I'm coming back for you. He talks about heaven. He then, in chapter 14, verse 12, talks about not only paradise, but he moves into another topic, and that is you're going to have power. Just because I'm gone doesn't mean that you cannot do ministry. And he's telling them, and by the way, keeping in mind that he wants them not to quit. He wants them to continue. So he says you're going to have power. In fact, you're going to do greater works than I have done. We talked about what that was. He says, and if you have any needs, call upon me. I will answer you. And he repeats that twice. in verses 13 and 14. Then he goes on and he says, okay, after I'm giving you all of this, I want you to remember you have to do my commands. You have to do whatever I command you. If you really love me, do my commandments. And he, so he lays that principle out because he's going to tell them in the next few days, he's going to tell them, you've got to be a witness, you've got to continue. Before he leaves in a few weeks, he's going to say, go into all the world, keep my commands if you really love me. Then he also promises them and starts in entertaining the thought, and he does it twice in this whole conversation, about the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to leave you orphanless. That's the word, comfortless. Paraclete is, can be the idea that you're not going to be orphaned. And so he's giving them all these positives and these ideas and he does a lot of repetition and he repeats some of these thoughts as you go through chapter 14. And it's not because he's in a moment where he doesn't remember what he just said. He, you know, Like some of us, we repeat ourselves because we forget we said something. He is repeating for a purpose. These men are in a crisis moment, they are all of a sudden somewhat confounded, confused, they're hearing some things they didn't plan on and so their response like us, when we hear something that is kind of a uh, tragic news, we, we have it repeated. Well Jesus repeats some of these thoughts and they don't get it. I mean some of it when he says I'm going to leave, they ask again, how come we can't go with you? They ask him two or three times. And so he's repeating and he's telling them, and this is very reassuring, that afterwards when I'm gone the Holy Spirit's going to bring this all to your mind. Don't worry. The Holy Spirit's going to remind you. And some of the things that aren't being written down right now, you're not going to remember. You're not putting them in your cell phone, guys. You, the Spirit will record them, and you'll get them later. And so he's been very, very comforting and very kind to them in his conversation. Well, the conversation moves on. In the course of the, he starts, go, uh, again, going back to something I'm going to give you. This section of Scripture is a very interesting section because he repeats again, let not your heart be troubled. We're in chapter 14, the last few verses. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives it, but give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard how I said to you, I go away, and I will come again to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of the world is coming and has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us leave. So this is the very last part of the conversation in the upper room, around the table. They're going to leave, and when they exit, he's going to continue talking. And so He's going to talk about peace. Let's back up a little bit. The Bible gives two different ideas about peace in the New Testament. One is peace with God. The other one is peace, the peace of God. Okay, And there's a big difference, though they come from the same source. That idea of peace with God is a very, very important thought that you and I and everybody needs to come to a point where we realize by nature we are not in a peaceful relationship with God. In fact, by nature all of us are what? We're sinners. In fact, the Scriptures calls us enemies of God. Scriptures talks about that we are alienated, and it repeats it again, that we are enemies of God. That we do the wicked works. So this is what we are by nature. The idea is that we are dead in our trespasses, walking according to the prince of the darkness. And so we are on an opposite side. By nature, we are on an opposite um, opposite. You know, teams with uh, against God, fighting with him. Now the work of Jesus Christ is that work that reconciles, that brings peace between us and God, that talks about in Romans that reconciliation and having peace and reconciling, um, reconciling us to himself, to the Father. So through Jesus Christ we do get peace with God. That's why we're supposed to have our feet shod with the gospel of peace. God is often referred to in the New Testament with this concept that he is the God of peace, the one who brings between us a restoration and a a peaceful unity factor. So that is a New Testament concept. We have peace with God. So when you read it, that's what he's talking about. In this text he is talking, I think, about this peace, the peace of God. You, you, You remember that from Philippians, the peace of God that passes all understanding. This is for the believer. This is that idea of having a calmness, having a tranquility, having a stability, having a steadfastness, having things with your own spirit, I should say. Your spirit under control when everything around you is out of control. And so in this idea, it's okay, I can go through trials, I can deal with difficulties, even despite the circumstances and the obstacles, the opposition that's facing me and all the problems. Which is really interesting because in this text, He is saying, let not your heart be troubled okay and he's talking about that inner peace and then he goes on and says and neither let yourselves be afraid so this is the piece that seems most understanding what he's talking about it's not a panic it's not being fearful it's not you know getting you know beside yourself and what's going on distressed troubled the word trouble means literally pulled apart you've seen people like that that all of a sudden when when trouble comes they just cannot function they are pulled in so many different directions and he is saying that no matter what happens guys despite the past or the problems or the persecutions, which he's going to talk about in a few minutes, okay, beyond this, or the people around you, whatever, he says, you can have peace. I am going to leave you peace. In fact, he calls it my peace. I leave you. You're going to have the same thing that I have at this moment. And so he's basically talking about a tranquil soul and not a troubled heart in the midst of all these problems. And I think it is critical for us to understand The peace that he has, he's going to be able to give. And in this text, Jesus demonstrates a real peaceful, tranquil spirit. Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he has peace and yet he still has some trouble. We're not saying that you won't have some uh, anxiousness at moments where you won't sweat the drops of blood. We're saying that you don't panic, you don't run, you don't give up. You're going to have that steadfastness and uh, though there may be some apprehension. And and I'll go back to the silly illustration I've given you before. Some people will say, I know this is the will of God because I have such great peace about it and when I have this great peace I have no nervousness. I've had people tell me this when it comes to weddings. They have said, oh I have the peace of God that this is the person. And so are you sure the day of the wedding? You know, do, are you sure that this is the person? It's like yeah, do you have this great peace or are you a little bit nervous? Normally what attitude are people going to have? A little bit of nervousness? Okay, so a little bit of nervousness does that mean we still don't have the peace of God? I don't think so. It's just that idea of uh, you know, how, you know, there's, there's going to be nervousness even when you're serving the Lord, isn't it? Yes, No? Let me, see. Let me put you in your everyday life. Somebody talks to you about the gospel. Now you get engaged in the conversation. You've been kind of you know, wanting to talk with them and all of a sudden they engage the conversation. Some of us have a nervousness. I want to make sure I say the right thing. And there's a nervousness. Does that mean God isn't there and you don't have this undergirding faith and, and confidence? No. Okay, There may be some of that nervousness. I, I don't know about you. When I get up to teach, when I get up to preach, there's just an innate nervousness that's there and yet there's a very comforting piece that says, I know what I'm saying is true. I know it's based on the word of God. I'm just going to let you know, going to have to let God have the results. So you have those experiences in many different facets of your life. And so he's talking about this peace that he's saying, okay, here if we have this peace that I'm going to leave with you, there is going to be somewhat of a calmness and a self-control. Even though there might be some, some inner apprehensions, it's that inner apprehensions isn't taking over. That that, you know, that um, <laughs> I want to use, you know, um, terminology that's probably going to come across. That, that just, I want to run, I want to give up, and it's just I'm just defeated. That, that's not what we're talking about. Where he's saying, you don't want that. That's not what I'm leaving. I am leaving you a confidence, somewhat of a tranquility even though it's going to be challenged. You might even face death, but you're going to be able to face it with some self-control, some confidence, and yet you might have, you know, How am I going to do through the process? And so he's talking about this, and he says it to the guys, and several things that strike me here. He says, this is the same peace that I have, okay? And Jesus has peace. Does he have peace when he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, according to the text, it blends together. There is peace, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have agony. And so they're going together. Jesus is saying, okay, I'm going to have this peace. Some of it is demonstrated in what's going to happen. And you think about it when he stands before Pilate. Pilate is, is grilling him and he very, in a peaceful way is saying, you don't have any power unless I gave it to you. Or it comes from above. If my kingdom were of this earth, my, so my own people would fight. And so there's a calmness about him and a peace even despite the pressures that are there. It is different from the world. How is it that he says, my peace I give is different than what you can get from the world. How how does the world's peace differ from what Christ gives? Or is he not, is it just kind of, he's just making a statement that isn't true? When you think about the peace that you get from the world, it's outward? Okay. 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 Um, It's temporary. Okay, I think that's a truism. Yeah, absolutely. There is a hollowness to it. Okay, um, where do you get peace from? Where does the world tell you to go and get peace? Money. Okay, anything else? What do some people look at? What, what do they? What do they grab in order to have peace? What kind of things do they do? Okay, it could be family. It could be family. Sure. Sure. Okay, possessions. Okay. Do some people go to um, narcotics for peace? Okay. Do they go to um, alcohol? Okay, Because that makes me bolder and more of a personality if I drink. Um, do, they go, do they go to intimidation? You know, all those things play in there. Jesus Christ is saying, I give you a totally different peace in that it, my peace, it's, it's eternal, it's lasting, it's found in me and a relationship. And like the world, that peace, you, I think you said Naomi when you said hollow, there is a weakness to that. Okay, it is often very temporary. But he is saying what I give you is really going to last. It's going to be there. And then he makes this, com- this comment again, let not your heart be troubled. We're talking of a divine tranquilizer. A divine calmness and comfort in the middle of trials that Jesus Christ had and being such an example. And I remind you what he is saying. In, put, you, put yourself in his circumstances. He is about to die. He knows he's going to get arrested. He knows he's going to get beaten up. He knows he's going to, in the next 24 hours, he's going to suffer this, this hellish uh, torture for sin. He knows that's all coming. He knows it's there. And yet he is not in a panic situation. In fact, the last words he says to them, let's go. Which way are we going? Away from the cross or is he going towards the cross? In the middle of the trial, he has the ability to have strength to face the trial. In the middle of this trial, he is talking to these guys and he is saying these comments. And this is an interesting text where he says, if you, you love me, you'd be glad for me. You'd be glad that I've said I'm out of here. I've said that one of you is going to betray me. I said all these things and you would be glad for me. How do we be glad? For somebody who's going to go through torture well it's the way Jesus views this and we'll get to that in a moment but he says and he focuses I'm returning to the father I'm going to the father it kind of strikes me that in a way and I think many of you have had that attitude when you have said to loved ones it's okay we'll be okay you can leave you can go and be with the Lord why you're going to be sad that they're gone but you're also where's that bittersweetness you're happy for who for them because they're going to go and they're going to be advancing and having a whole new experience and so Jesus has this calmness in the face of the torture, the trial and promoting and expecting, rejoicing You know, and focusing on guys, there should be a, this should be a joyful occasion uh, and he's doing that, that, that there's a peace there because here's, here's where this peace concept, he is not looking at the immediate process but he's looking at the results, he's looking at where is this going to take us in trials we struggle with the process, but all things work together for, for good. Okay, and there's where the peace, the calmness, the control. Okay, it doesn't mean we won't have panicking anxieties or, or um, some type of emotions at times that there, there is no anxiety or just want. But there's going to be a calmness that is going to help us to stay where we should be, what we should be doing, not, not in a panicking way, bailing out or quitting on Jesus Christ. And even though we have the emotions that may be teetering at moment, at times, he's saying look for the good. That gives us the peace. Something else that, that is interesting. And by the way, do you remember, any of you remember the beginning of Hebrews 2? Jesus counted it all blank to go to the cross. Counted a joy to suffer to do what God had said. So there's this idea uh, that peace comes because of what's ahead. What's it going to bring me? Where's it going to get me? I'm going to get back to the Father. There's going to be good that's coming out of it. That is one, meth- uh, one um, ingredient to the peace. This one is another one where he says to them, He says, My Father is greater than I. And so part of his stability, part of his peacefulness comes from the fact of what he thinks about God. And he's talking here that God is greater. Um, Here's the problem when he said this. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I take that back. Here's the problem that some have made based on what Jesus said. There are some who grab this portion of scripture, especially like JW's and others, and they say this is Jesus' own word saying that he and the Father are not equal. He is not divine. He is not at all um, equated with God. There is no such thing as a, as a trinity. And this is one of the major texts they use. Because he is saying my Father is greater than I. And so obviously he is saying that we have a Real distinction between us in the sense that we are not equal, we don't have the same abilities, the same powers. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is he saying, I don't have any divine ability within me to do the same works that God the Father could do? Well, if we say that's true, then we are saying that the Trinity is not equal in the sense of abilities. Okay, if we say that there's a different aspect, then it lines up with Scripture. There's a whole other idea that my father is greater than I, and it has nothing to do with ability. It has nothing to do with power. It has nothing to do with divine attributes. What does it have to do with? Let me see if I can put it this way. Okay, are you equal as a husband and wife in value? Yes, okay, in worth before God? Yes, okay. Is there some distinction? roles? Yes, no? Okay, there's an obvious distinction. And in the roles that you have that God has set up, is one of you a little bit more equal than the other in the role that God has established? The answer is absolutely positively. Who's the head? Biblically. The man of the household is the head and the woman is is the neck that turns the head. Yes, right. Okay. And she's, but, but there's an equality and yet there's a distinction in position. Who is greater in position? The man or the woman? The man. Okay. That doesn't mean the woman isn't, doesn't have great value or assets, but there is a distinction there. Does Jesus Christ ever, or anywhere in scriptures, does it ever say Jesus is subordinate to the Father, that the Father in position is greater than the Son? The answer is absolutely positively yes. 1 Corinthians 11 develops that whole concept that just as the father is the head of Christ, even so the husband is the head of the woman. Does that mean that they're not of equal uh, uh, worth or abilities? At t- no. It has to do with role. It has to do with position. Jesus Christ in his ministry did he not say that whosoever does the will of the father they're part of my family? Did he not say, I must be about my Father's business? Does he not say in Gethsemane, you know, not my will but, okay, yours be done. In that sense, the two two are not equal in position, but in person, they're equal. Because they're Trinity. I mean, before he has already said, I and the Father are one. Okay, so how do we get that there's not a contradiction here? Okay, it's, it's very simple, it's very clear, there is no contradiction. They are equal God and yet within the Trinity there are role responsibilities where there is a submissive spirit by the Son to the Father. And so that, that's very clearly addressed in the idea that Jesus Christ has a submissive spirit, my Father is greater than I. By the way, if somebody is greater, let's take it back to Old Testament days Okay, or New Testament era where Jesus is, if somebody is greater and that greater one has sent somebody off to go and do a task, what does the task worker probably have to do in time? Come back and report to the one who is greater. Does that not make sense? Okay, so when he says, I'm going to the Father, what does that indicate? If I am going to the Father and making my report, what about my job? It is complete. Okay, and so I'm going to be, this is a rejoicing time because I am finishing my job. I am getting it all done. The reason that I was sent here, and then I'm going to go to the Father and my job is done. It's all over with. Now I'm restored to and we know this from other scriptures. He's restored to his glory once his job is done. And so in that regard there should be rejoicing. And Jesus very clearly in other passages we have that you can be looking up that talk about that he, he was obedient even unto death. Doing the will of the Father like in Philippians chapter 2. So he's talking in this passage not of that he's not divine but rather within the Trinity there is job order. There is accountability. There is uh, an answering. And in that regard, Jesus is saying, I have peace at this moment. I have peace that I am finishing my task. I have peace that I'm going to go and rejoin my father. And so again, he's looking at what good comes out of this and that his father is able to assist him and help him to get this all done. done so he has a calmness because he knows he has done what God has wanted him to do. So you and I in the middle of the trials, we can have a calmness that Jesus talks about, a peace because we can look and say there's good out of this. We can have a calmness in the peace that in the middle of, let's take these guys, in, the, in their in their life, they're going to face persecution. The calmness and peace that they can have, even though there's, again, emotions are going to go a little bit up and down, but they're going to be able to say, I am being persecuted because I have done right. I have done what God has said. I'm not leaving with guilt. I'm not paranoid because, oh no, I'm blowing it. Rather, this is what God has directed me. I've been faithful to God. Here's some of the consequences so I know I'm doing the will of God so that that gives me a peace of mind even in the middle of the hardships so I can be rejoicing because of the good that will come out of it. Even watch what he does here. He is talking to these guys and he's saying, I am telling you this before it all happens, which makes sense. He's trying to minister to them. Peace comes out of not focusing on yourself, but focusing on other people. Meeting other people's needs. You're going through an illness, you're going through a financial problem. One of the ways that you get peace in your heart is look and minister to others who have a more difficult situation than you do. And there's a stability that comes through it, there's a peace that comes through it. So Jesus Christ is demonstrating all this, and he is going to make this comment, and he's done it. He said in this text, I'm going to wage war, and of the, with this God of this world, but he has nothing in me. I am not guilty of anything. And so all of that plays into his stability, his strength, his calmness, because of the good that can come out of it, because he knows he's doing the will of the Father, because he knows that that when he, is, when he goes through all this, he's going to be focusing on others, and this is something that is going to be helping others, and I have no guilt. Satan has nothing in me. I want to, I want to just address a couple of phrases that he uses. Think with this, you know, this calmness, what did the cross mean to Jesus Christ? When Jesus had a calmness and even though he struggled you know, you know, with the cup and he's, he's praying with, with that stress, there is still strength. There is still the okay commitment. How did he maintain that strength and the commitment in the middle of this trial? What did the cross mean to him? interesting when we start putting this passage together. Chapter 13 verse 31 he has already talked about by his death he is glorifying the Father. Something else. He is saying and he's already meant he mentions in this passage because I love the Father I'm going to do what I do. He demonstrates love for the Father by this obedience. So he looks at the cross and sees it as a way to glorify God, as a way to be obedient to the Father. He sees his experience in the cross in another sense. It is his method, his route, his ticket to returning to the Father. He sees the cross that he's going through as the moment he can defeat Satan, the, the, the enemy since the beginning of creation. For Jesus Christ, this is going to be a victory statement, a victory moment. He, uh, in fact, Hebrews, First John, john they all talk about the idea that he's going to destroy, that he's going to render powerless Satan during this time. He's not going to have the same abilities that, that if people want to resist, they're going to have the ability to resist. And he says that when I, when I am uh, lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. And so he's seeing this as victory moment. This is a flag moment. So the cross to him is all he's looking at all the benefits, and he ends up by talking about this is this is going to result in me being honored, me being glorified. So when he's looking at his greatest trial and difficulty, he's not looking at just the pain and the agony, which by the way it's there. I mean, he talks about that and prays about it, but that's not his major focal point. His major focal point is what are the benefits. What are the benefits? And so when James writes, his brother, James writes later on, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trial of your faith works in any glist things. And so Jesus is, by his own life, is saying, the, good, the trials we face, the difficulties, look for the benefits. And as you look for the benefits, then there is going to be a stability that's going to come through it, which is tremendous thinking, tremendous example. And so we look at the cross, and he looks at it from that perspective, and no wonder he had the strength to go through it. No wonder he had the ability. Did it cause him pain and agony and some anxiousness? There's no doubt about that. We know that by his prayer. We know that. But the stability and the control to be able to go through it, even though there was, there was more, the fluctuating emotions, this is why. Because of he's looking and he's doing that Romans eight. All things work together for good. Okay? And so he makes another statement here, by the way, when he talks about this divine tranquility. He says, The prince of this world has nothing in me. What's he mean by that? What's he mean by the prince of the world has nothing in me? Any thoughts? What's that? I think that's part of it. I think it's absolutely... Here's the options that I, that I figured thing in my mind. Satan can't find any fault in Jesus Christ. And by the way, could that give you a lot of peace when you have no guilt? I mean, people, sometimes the reason that we don't have a calmness of spirit is because we know that we said something out of tune and out of turn. We know that we've caused somebody some agony. We know we've done something wrong and need to make it right, and that keeps us up at night. And so Jesus Christ doesn't have that. No fault found. It could be close to it, but the same thing, but different. Satan has not been able to influence Christ in any way, okay? And did Satan try to influence Jesus? Sure. We know at least the one, trent, uh, the one temptation in the wilderness, but we also know of another one when he used Peter. Do you remember? He said, Peter, get behind me, Satan, okay? And so we know that that's, that happened, but he never, he never had victory. Satan has no claim Okay, of the power of Christ uh, in this sense that we know that Romans warns us to whom we yield ourselves we become their servants. So in saying this Jesus is talking about his, his perfect life, his guiltless life and he's making those comments and he's going to defeat another, another singular display that the disciples will catch on later how great Jesus is. How absolutely amazing he is. That they were in the presence of sinlessness. And uh, that, that's going to be profound for them as they, and they write the epistles based upon some of this teaching and some of these statements as they come to mind later on. Let's make some observations, okay, uh, before we, we leave the upper room and start moving down the street. There is no real peace outside of Christ. There is temporary peace, it's there, but there's no real lasting peace that takes us through all that we need to go through. All and any believers can have this peace in any type of trial when we trust in Christ any and all of us. It's not limited to just a certain few within, within the body of Christ, uh, certain gender or age or um, givers. It's, it's not like that at all. Like Christ, look at your personal trials as opportunities. Look at them as opportunities. Opportunities to be able to grow, do better, serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Christ, make it your goal to glorify God in your response to your trials. This is where you and I really I think the, the most impacting life thought would be glorifying God, glorifying God, glorifying God in how we respond, even initially when that flat tire comes, even initially when that, that unexpected bill shows up, even initially when all of a sudden the water pipe breaks, even initially when you hear that call in the middle of the night, ma, 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 okay, just your, you know, remember my reaction, my response, I still want to glorify the Lord. Okay, <coughs> in what we do. Look at Christ, look, like Christ, look at the good that comes. Look at the good that comes out of whatever your trial is. And look at how you can minister to others. These will help you to have a stability and a strength and a stick-to-itiveness in all your difficulties, glorifying God, looking for the good, ministering to others in the midst of your trials. Let me continue on. To comfort and encourage others in trials, which Jesus is doing in action, he is doing this with the disciples. He is going to be directing them in this regard. He's reminding them of who he is. How great I am, who I am, remind them. Remind of the hope That He provides just like he's giving them help and hope when you're dealing with a family member when you're dealing with a brother or sister in Christ who feels like they can't go any further remind them of what he says in this text this text this whole passage is a counseling um, passage that you should use as a guide to help out people who feel defeated who feel discouraged. What he does is he reminds them of all the blessings. Paradise and I put them up here to help you remember. Paradise, power, prayer, paraclete, and peace. This is what Jesus is giving the disciples when they are going to be absolutely tormented. Am I going to fail you? Who's betraying you? You can't die. You can't leave. Remember paradise, power, prayer, paraclete, and Peace. And those are in critical. You, you, I, if I were you, if you, if you have a tough time remembering, I would write these, pa- these thoughts down in the flyleaf of my Bible with the reference out of John 14 so that when you're talking to somebody who feels defeated, you're able to say, here's what God promises to you and I in the middle of our difficulties so that we can be encourage one another. Remind them what we are to do in the middle of trials that we have obligations that we're to obey God's commands. Not quit, not faint, but if you love me, keep my commandments. So they have requirements, they have responsibilities. You and I in the middle of our difficulties, we need to remember the promises and we need to remember the requirements. I am required in the middle of the difficulty to still obey even though I don't feel like it even though I've got big, big problems going. I must obey you and I must do that. Encourage them to move forward into God's will, not away from it. And that is his last phrase in chapter 14, verse 31. Let's go. Let's go. They leave the upper room. They're walking out the door. They're going to head to a place where Jesus knows Judas knows about. And Jesus knows he's going to bring soldiers. And so they leave this upper room, and en route to the upper room, now chapter 17 is his high priestly prayer. prayer. Verses, chapters 15 and 16 is his ongoing conversation. He is doing what some of us do. As they're walking along, he is going to be teaching. Some of, some of you do it this way. Now you're driving along, this is teaching time. You're continuing a conversation, you're giving instruction, and usually if you're like Jesus, you're going to tie in things that you see, things that you look around. They walk out of the upper room, they start going through the streets. It's dark at night, but every street they go down, they're going to see something. They're going to see things coming, you know, that are on the walls, that are there in Jerusalem. Something that is very typical of the ancient world and he talks about it in the next verse. They're walking along and what is filled in this city? Everybody has them. They're with everybody's home. They're there by their doors, by their gates. What does every Jew have? Not just Jews, but look at chapter 15 verse 1-2. What is the object lesson that he points to as they're walking along? Okay, Hey, guys, look it. We have all these, all these different vin, vines growing all over. Everybody. It's not just out in the field. People in their own, in their own garden at the backside of the house. I, I told you this before. We were in, when we were in um, um, Beliat Surkov, when we went there years ago, Deb and I made a trip and the missionary who, who lived there before the tuttles got there, he wanted to take down all of his fruit trees in his backyard. He had large plum tree, uh, large, uh, trees that had plums, but he wanted a hammock just to be able to be the backyard, to be a safety zone. We understand that. Yes, no? It's kind of like your, your backyard becomes your place. You can just unwind. And instead of having a potato patch and pear trees and plum trees and all these different trees that absolutely filled the yard. I'm telling you, you couldn't put a hammock in this backyard. The trees were all over that you couldn't string be something to just lay down and even if you did, you'd be underneath where all the fruit fell. And so we were there in the fall and it was potato season and it was also harvest season for a lot of the fruit. And so they kept on asking us, who's doing your potato harvest? Who's taking care of your garden back home? Why are you here this week? You know, who's, uh, who's unearthing your potatoes? Giant? Wise? Okay, that was that, you know, that's our potato thing. And so what the missionary said, if you want to do something to help me out, cut down some of the trees so I have a place where the sunshine comes through and I can just lay back there and just have moments of respite. So we start cutting down trees. The reaction of the neighbors was vehement. They were really strong reactionary. You know, what are you dumb Americans? I could understand you know, the idea of Ameri- Americans. I got that word. And some of the others, and when they were shaking their fist, I got the idea, we're dumb Americans. Okay? And so some of them, you know, you know, they begged, throw, and so we got the idea, we'll throw some of the plums over. Okay? Because the missionary wasn't harvesting them, and so the neighbors were out there with baskets, and we were throwing the plums you know, off the roof and overwards. Why were they so upset? in that culture, what do you use your property for? It's food. It's nourishment. You use it. What do we use our properties for? We grow grass and then what do we do with the grass? We cut it down. We fertilize it. We do all the things. We want grass and then we cut it all down. And then we fertilize it some more and it grows and we cut it all down. And then we complain about having to cut the grass, okay? And the prices of fruit, you know, at the supermarket. And so it's just a different mindset. We are talking a different mindset. Everybody in their backyard is going to have their vineyard. It's just very common. So as he's walking, in fact, in the the streets of Jerusalem that one of Herod's projects that he did in the rebuilding of Jerusalem is he put, especially around the temple, there was a golden ivy, you know, a mock-up of all of the vines that encircled the entire the entire area of the temple. And so it's very common, you would have vineyards, you would have the lattices, as you would, that would be there and growing for vines. And so you're, he's walking along everywhere they look as they go. Somebody's got a vineyard, 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 You know, even small if you would, but they've got them all over. And he uses that and starts talking. And as he's talking, he's just going to give that discussion that you and I know, the vine and the branches. And we all know some of this aspect, so let's run through some of it quickly. It is It's the night he's dying, he is headed after the last supper. They've just had some cups of wine they're walking through and he's going to make these comments as they head for Gethsemane. And they're going to see it. It's there. It's all a part of the city. It's there and it's very, very common. In fact, in the Old Testament, Israel is often called the vine. That plays into his comments. That Israel frequently in the prophets is called God's vine or even God's vineyard. And so he's going to build upon that concept and he's going to start talking about this vineyard. And in this concept that we keep in mind, this isn't about evangelism. He has used sometimes planting and harvesting to talk about the seed going in and bearing fruit, people getting born again. This is not that. This is talking to believers. All the disciples, you he says are, are believers. You're already within the vine. He's talking about you guys, disciples and us. You guys, what are you going to do in the days ahead? And again, I'm going to be gone. Here's what, here's what you need to know. I'm giving you my spirit, prayer. I'm you power, giving you peace, to do what? This is the passage that, t- that tells them what they can't quit at. And so he talks about this whole idea of what they need to do and how they need to grow in the Lord and keep on growing despite the fact that he's going to be gone. The main lesson, the word that comes more than, uh, the, than anything is not fruit, even though that's major. The main lesson here is abiding in Christ. He keeps on talking about abiding, 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 abiding. It comes time 11 times he uses the word. It's not always translated in our English as abide. Uh, Continue one time and remain in the King James. The rest of the time it's all abide. But 11 times in the original language it's all about abiding that he wants them to do this. To just remain close to him. To abide. To uh, live in in close proximity to him. And so in this passage he's going to use other by the way there are other analogies about closeness um, closeness, other analogies. He defines himself as the husband and the wife. The uh, other analogies he uses of closeness. Um, he is the head, we are the body. Every, all these analogies have the same concept of being very close to Christ and abiding with him and being in a very intimate with him. And so he's going to go on and he's going to make comments about abiding. He's going he's to teach them in depth about what it requires, what will happen if you abide and how, how you can do it. And so he gets launches off, and I want you to catch this that when he uses the word abide, the majority of the times in this text, it's a command. It's it's in the imperative. So it's not something we have optional. It's something we are to actively do. It is necessary. He's gonna make sure. He says, Unless you abide in me, you cannot bear fruit. So in order to have fruit, which oftentimes we as Americans, we look at the fruitfulness, we look at the productivity. He says, Wait a minute. Productivity starts by abiding with me. It's not first doing, it's first being okay and so you have to be with me close with me and then you will bear this fruit this by the way bearing fruit is the way we glorify God and we want to do that want to glorify God but he is making it very clear in this text this is how you glorify me and he even makes this comment This this is an amazing statement that he makes later on he says you have not chosen me but I have chosen you and ordained you a lot of people in their theology stop at that verse right where I stopped. Let me read it again, verse 16. And notice something that's very important. He says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. A lot of people in our community, there's some churches that will teach this morning, they'll say, God has chosen you to get saved and others not to get saved. And it's God's picking and choosing by grace. It's called, you know, they'll use the term of election. By the way, the term is in the Bible, okay, that we are elected. But the question is, are we elected to salvation? Not according to this text. Look at what the text says. I have cho- you have not chosen me, I have chosen you, and I have ordained you, and it goes on. That you should what? What is God determined we're supposed to do? Be, be fruit bearers, not just to get saved. He, I have an eeny, meeny, miny, moe, picked you. No, no. God has predestinated us in Romans, to be conformed to Jesus Christ. It's not just, okay, I, I just chose people to get saved and that's it. No, 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 no. What he does is the people who have responded to the gospel, they, it, is, it is God's decree that those who are born again, who accept his, him by faith, they are decreed that as believers they must be fruitful in their lives. That is what God has predetermined. They need to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So getting saved is not the summary of it all. That's just the beginning. And so he's going to make these statements that are very important. If we have been preordained to bear fruit, okay, he's now telling us how that's possible. You cannot bear this fruit It's God's desire. It's God's command. It's what I ordained you to do but you can't do it if you don't abide in me and stay close to me. Next week let's pick up. Let's talk about how that's how do we get close to Christ in order to be fruit bearers. Thanks for listening. Wake that person up so they can get ready for the worship.